0: So, were well, you ready? I'm ready. All right, let's, let's begin. Well, friends, welcome today to today's um, Truett Church Network event, webinar, and podcast. Our guest today, for those of us who are Truett grads, which as I'm looking, is most on the call, um, is Dr. Hewlett Glower. Um, Dr. Glower needs no introduction for many of us. Um, he taught at Truett for 18 years, retiring um, a couple years back. Much to everyone's uh, chagrin around here, but we're thankful um, he's been able to uh, to retire well and have good work to do, we'll talk about it in a minute. Um, Dr. Glower, for many of us, as messages are coming in of how good it is to see him on the chat, um, is the, the person that taught many of us to preach, to taught us to seek the kingdom of God um, and to preach the kingdom of God. I remember very clearly Dr. Glower in preaching, no, it wasn't preaching one, but where you made us list and talk about every mention of the kingdom of heaven or kingdom of God, and I was just about sick of it. I thought, isn't seminary more? not we aren't we supposed to preach at some point? I was like, I get it. It's it's here. It's there. It's both here and now. It's at hand. And then we finally, then it made that turn, um, and the kingdom of God and its import in the ministry and preaching of Jesus came home and. I don't think I've preached a sermon the same since, and in that way, your class has affected everything in my ministry, in my life, and how I teach my children, and so many things, and I'm thankful for it. Um, I did bring this today um, to show everyone, does God have a big toe? Uh, I'm not going to read from it, but I did look it up and say there was most classes began with a reading or a mention of that God, does God have a big toe? So I thought it would be a good throwback for us to, uh, (laughs) to have that today, but Dr. Glower, thank you for taking time to be with us today. We appreciate it very much.
1: I'm happy to be here, Matt, and uh,
0: greetings to you and all the people who are, are tuning in. So tell us a little bit about um, retirement life for you. What have you been up to the last couple years? And, and if you would, how is this new season of life shaping you um, in, in your faith and your ministry?
1: Well, it's been uh, two very full years, actually three now, three very full years since we moved out of Waco and first to Little Rock, Arkansas, where I was the scholar in residence at Second Baptist Church in Little Rock. Uh, that's a great church. It's been a, a leader in um, dealing with issues of concern throughout its history. It was the first church in Arkansas to welcome Blacks back in the 1950s, and it paid a price for that. But it's been that kind of church throughout its history. Pastors, Preston Clegg, many of you know Preston. I don't know of a a finer pastor, prophet, preacher anywhere than Preston. Uh, Chris Ellis is also on the staff there. Andy Black is on the staff there. So we had a kind of a, a, a Truett homecoming for a couple of years while I was there. Our role there was preaching, it was teaching, leading special studies on the kingdom of God, discipleship in the New Testament, the Lord's Prayer, uh, any number of things. Uh, Also, we also started Clergy Lay Institute, which meets four times a year, twice in the fall and twice in the spring. Uh, This year we've done uh, Matthew and Mark in the the fall and we're doing Luke Mm -hmm. and Acts in the spring. So that will continue. Uh, I also started a Thursday Bible study when the med- pandemic hit, and that is continuing and will continue. Uh, we have people not only from Second Little Rock, but also from Second Liberty here where Jason Edwards is pastor, and uh, from some people from Kentucky, from Georgia, from South Carolina, from Texas. Uh, it's just really been an incredibly good experience for me. So. I've been quite busy uh, and I've been doing Zoom studies for churches uh, all over the place. I think we've learned a great lesson here that uh, we can do studies without moving and (laughs) for somebody my age is really a good thing. But it's been a great couple of years. We're settled in our home in Liberty, Missouri, just outside Kansas City. And uh, we just uh, really like it here. Got great neighbors, a great community, so uh, all is well as it should be for us, and uh, we're grateful.
0: That's wonderful. That's wonderful to hear. Um, that and for those who are sitting here thinking, "Man, I would really like to uh, sit in a Bible study in a group discussion with Hewlett Glower again." Stay tuned to the end. We may have something to satisfy. Your appetite, and so more more details on that. How's that for a good teaser? I feel like that was pretty good TV work right there. Um, you know, it's too. like the news, right? Big story coming. Hang in there, yeah. um, Hewlett. We visited with Mike Stroop, We visited with several others, really about the same subject we're visiting with. We're visiting about today, and we'll visit others in the coming months. Um, there's no surprise to any of us. We're in a challenging world right now that seems to be fracturing on its edges, or fracturing perhaps at the middle as everyone drifts to edges, harder and harder to hold middle ground, harder and harder to navigate um, in our churches politically, theologically, any number of different ways. We can speak to the rise of nationalism. We can speak to the racial tensions in society. Um, We could go on and on. Um, We need conversation partners, we being all ministers who have traversed this a little bit ahead ahead of a lot of us and to hear stories of how you have navigated faithfulness in your life, how you have uh, acted, spoken prophetically, spoken um, to your conscience and calling while also not burning all your relationships, (laughs) Um, how you have maintained hopefulness and haven't settled into entrenched cynicism, things like that. And that's really what we're here to talk about today. Would you be willing to share a story with us, an instance, a situation, where navigating faithfulness in your life was particularly difficult and how you navigated those paths.
1: Sure, I'd be glad to. Uh, And there are any number of places that I could could start, but let me me share a bit about what happened to me in the early to middle 90s in the last century. Um, I had been Preaching since I was a sophomore in high school, uh, I came to Baylor and majored in religion and Greek, went to seminary, uh, ultimately got a PhD, and uh, I'd been teaching. I never intended to teach. I always planned to preach and, uh, and be a pastor, but an opportunity came, and uh, we felt it was God's leadership to take a teaching position, and so we did, and you know, the rest was history. Now, all the time I was teaching, I was also preaching. I served as interim pastors continually throughout my teaching career. But in the mid-90s, Midwestern was in the midst of the uh, SBC chaos, and um, I went into a a depression, uh, which became a deep depression. I couldn't understand it how could a Christian be depressed? My mother had had some severe depression. She was a cancer victim. And the last couple of years, she had some very severe de- depression. And I just couldn't understand it. She was as faithful a person as I, I'd ever known. She read her Bible every day. She prayed every day. Um, she was always at church. How could she be depressed? And, you know, my attitude to her was just get up out of bed, do something. Just do something.
0: Yeah.
1: I just didn't have a clue what depression was. Well, when it hit me in the mid-90s, I wished that I could go back to those days in my mother's life when she passed away in 1976. But I came to understand what depression is. And I'm really not sure you can totally understand depression unless you have been depressed. Uh, It's very difficult to describe. The best description I can think of of it it comes from a book by William Styron uh, called Darkness Visible. Mm. That's a great title. And um, it, it, it imagines it as well as anything I've ever heard. You're living in darkness. It's all you can see is dark. Well, I was teaching at Midwestern at the time. I was interim pastor in a church at the time. Uh, I had to keep going because I couldn't acknowledge that this was really happening to me. It just wasn't right for a Christian, <laughs> pastor, a preacher, a seminary professor to be depressed. But I was severely I came to the point where I couldn't even pray. I lost the ability to pray. I had no words for prayer. I didn't know where God was. How do you deal with that? Well, first of all, somebody has to give you permission to seek help. And I'm convinced that our pews are filled with people who are struggling with depression. It's it's epidemic in our culture. And most of them are like me. They would not admit it, and they didn't want anybody else to know about it. So they wouldn't tell anybody. But until you share it with somebody, nobody can give you permission Mm. to do what you need to do. And it's find the help you need. So I was preaching, I was teaching. Uh, It got to the point where my wife would have to drive me to the seminary and there was a bank and and we'd pull over in the parking lot and I'd just break down and cry. Mm. I didn't think I could do it another day. But somehow I did it. I was really saved by two things. The first is the book of Psalms. I'd read Psalms but I never really read. Mm-hmm. Psalms runs the gamut of human emotions, from the highest heights to the deepest depths. The Psalms were a lifeline for me during that period. The other thing was somebody gave me a copy of the Book of Common Prayer. Now, I've been taught that you don't write prayers, you don't <laughs> eat prayers. Everything has to be spontaneous. So I struggled even with opening the Book of Common Prayer. But finally I did. And I found in there to my amazement that there were prayers that expressed the deep hurt I was feeling. So the church taught me again how to pray through the prayers of the Book of Common Prayer. When I couldn't pray, the church prayed for me. When I couldn't verbalize, using those prayers helped me begin to verbalize again. And that depression lasted for probably six or seven years in my life. I'm on the other side of that now, and I, I came to be on the other side of it. But there was a time when I wasn't sure I'd ever get to the other side. But God was faithful. And when I couldn't be with him, he was still with me. And gradually I came to realize that he was with me after all. Even the darkness. And that it was okay to be depressed. Seek what you need to seek to get beyond it, but first you have to acknowledge it and be willing to share it with someone else. That was probably the the most difficult period in my life of faith, in my life period, that period of depression. Yeah. So I hope maybe that's helpful in some way. Maybe some of you are dealing with depression in your own lives. I think it's not uncommon for pastors to deal with depression. But of course, we have to keep standing there. We have to keep preaching. And we do. But there is a brighter day out there.
0: I appreciate you sharing that. I know those aren't, even though we are on the other side, those are often aren't um, easy stories to share. Do you have, I mean, I do think you, I agree with you, everything that we know anecdotally and experientially and statistically says that uh, pastors may experience, probably experience a higher rate of depression than society at large because of the unique pastors in the umbrella term of congregational members, uh, congregational ministers. Um, Would you be willing to share, um, and this is off script for us a little bit, but how you let someone know in such a way that gave you permission to get some help, but in also such a way that preserved your family, preserved your job? I mean, how did you navigate that both personally and professionally? Because I think that's a, a tricky thing for many ministers to know how to how to do that well um, when you do have responsibilities and, and, I'll, and a call to pursue that. Sure.
1: Well, um, first of all, you have to find somebody you really trust. Now, obviously, the first person there is my wife, Sheila. Uh, I began to share with her. I mean, she knew I was depressed. She told me, I've known it for two years. (laughs) Uh, Before I even realized I was depressed, she knew I was depressed. So the, the support and affirmation that she gave to me during that period, Uh, was absolutely central. You also have to find somebody else that you can trust. And I had a very dear friend and we were leaving chapel one day after chapel. And he was also my pastor at the time, Leslie Holland. Hmm. And um, we'd gone to Baylor together, we have been in seminary together. We've been dear friends through the years. And I was walking with he and his wife, Vicki, back to my office after chapel. And I just couldn't go any further. I just stopped. And we walked to the corner of the chapel. And I just broke down and cried. And Les gave me permission to seek the help I needed. In fact, he recommended someone to me. And that that began my road to uh, recovery. When you get to the point where there's nothing left, find somebody you really trust and just tell them. And I was afraid. You know, my, my fear was, well, what do they think of me? Because this shouldn't happen to Christians. Well, it does happen to Christians. And um, so um, that support. Then there were some others that I shared it with. I had their support. I mean, I didn't broadcast it. Yeah. Um, Later, I've shared my testimony about it, even in sermons. There's one whole sermon I preach about my experience with depression. And it's amazing to me when I preach that sermon, inevitably, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten people will come up to you afterwards and say, oh, oh, I'm so glad you told that story. Yeah. Because that's me. And I didn't know it was okay to be me. So um, trust is important. uh, Support is important. And finding the right measures are important but don't be afraid to
0: look for them, did you, them. did you preach it through it or, or or did you preach it when you were on the other side of it
1: no i i, I didn't preach it through it i mean it was too close i, I didn't think i could do it you know emotionally yeah. but on the other side uh it's been very important to me to help people have permission to be who they are, where they are. Mm-hmm. And for many people, I believe, that's experiencing some level of depression.
0: Yeah. And that is the difficulty of preaching. I mean, I'm, I'm getting into your territory that isn't mine to talk about as much, but uh, finding that balance between not doing our, our therapy and our processing from the pulpit, but to know where, where there are areas of brokenness that have healed in our lives and where we see forgiveness and, and health from that we can bring, um, in healthy ways. And that's a, that's an important line to, to walk, but you're right. What a gift to be able to confess that and normalize just mental health struggles in general within our congregation and, uh, to relieve the condemnation and shame that a lot of people feel hopefully less and less, but, you know it's still there some. Yeah. Um, tell us about the other side. How have you maintained um, and, and fostered your mental health um, since, since those days? Because that's going back, you know, 20 plus years ago. Yeah, that's right.
1: Well, um, how do you remain faithful? Especially with all that's going on around us these days. Um, all the burdens that we always share but now extra burdens of being in the midst of this pandemic so how, how do we remain faithful in all of this well what i have what i have, have to share with you is nothing new but it has been important to me so let me just share a couple of things first of all faithfulness what is faithfulness my experience has come to be that faithfulness is trust and obedience. It's not just trust. It's not just obedience. It's trust and obedience. There are some times when I want to be on the trust side. In fact, most of the time, I want to be on the trust side rather than the obedient side. But faithfulness is trusting God to the point of obedience. I didn't grow up learning that. I didn't hear that in the churches I grew up in. I heard all about trusting Jesus, but not much about obeying Jesus. So much of my life has been spent trusting Jesus, but not necessarily obeying Jesus. Mm. And when we're faithful to both trust and obey, then I think our spiritual formation uh, moves ahead as it should. So, uh, you know, I'd begin there. Um, I'd also say I've learned to stay close to the cross. Uh, I used to give a a little token out to my students when they came to my house. It was just a little silver token with a cross on it. And I'd say to them, stay close to the cross, keep your eyes on the cross. Because the cross is both our place of redemption and our paradigm for life. Mm. It's both those things. It's not either or, it's both and. You know, my, my emphasis growing up was on the place of redemption. I've learned that trusting is not just knowing, it's doing. So faithfulness is trust and obedience. So, so how do you say faithful? Well, as I said, you stay close to the cross because, you know, we never liked crucifixes at Baptist. Uh, we said the cross is empty. So don't give me a crucifix with Jesus on it. He's not there anymore, but the cross should not be empty. Mm. I'm supposed to be there now. Paul said, I'm crucified with Christ. So the cross doesn't have Jesus on it now, but we are to be on the cross now. Take up your cross, he said. So keep your eye on the cross, stay close to the cross, Remember that we live a crucified life, crucified with Christ. Of course, studying Scripture is fundamental. There's never a time we should not be studying Scripture. And I don't mean just studying it for sermons and studying it for Bible studies. I mean studying it for personal transformation. We should be reading Scripture every day, not for... Exegesis, though we do exegesis, but for transformation, just reading through books every day has been important for me. A um, third thing, of course, is just to pray. I don't mean just talking to God. I don't mean just asking God. Prayer in its essence is being with God. What do you think Jesus was doing all those times he prayed? He was being with God, the Father. So learning to be with God is, I think, crucial. Prayer is being. With God. Uh, my wife and I have been married for almost 50 years now. I know I look much too young to, for you to believe that, but I was shocked. I
0: was shocked, yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, no, it's, it's true, though.
1: You know, we will find ourselves sitting in the same room for two or three hours and not saying a word to each other. That's okay. We have become one in such a way that we don't need to talk. We just need to be together. So prayer is being with God. That's its basic essence. So that means that we need to cultivate silence. And never has this been more necessary than it is now. We have noise all the time. We can have it 24-7. Silence is not a valued commodity in our culture. In a church service, you let somebody pause for 10 seconds. People are fidgeting around, trying to find something to do, wondering who who forgot their part. We have to cultivate silence, not just quiet, but deep silence. You know, Elijah heard God. Not in the noise, but in sheer silence. John of the Cross said, silence is God's first So we need to learn to be silent. Because in that silence, I found we can feel God's presence palpably. So cultivating silence, remembering that before words, there is always silence, and that our words grow out of the silence. Of course, you would expect me to say read, and (laughs) obviously I'm gonna say that. Read widely and read wisely. You can't read everything, but you need to read the good things. So how do you find the good things? Well, you ask your friends. What are you reading right now? Uh, you ask uh, colleagues. What are you reading right now? Uh, you can't go to the bookstore to ask a person in the bookstore, though when the bookstore is open again, I would recommend that you find somebody who works in the bookstore and make friends with them. And uh, let them point you to books that they think you might be interested in. Uh, I mean, there are any number of ways to narrow the list down because we only have so much time, but reading widely and reading wisely allows me to go places I could never go, allows me to be in time periods I could never be in, allows me to have experiences I could never have, If you wanna care for the people depressed in your congregation and not have that experience yourself, read Darkness Visible, Mm. read that book. It's only about hundred pages long. Um, People need to understand that we have some understanding of what they're experiencing. So reading gives us vicarious experiences that we can draw on in our pastoral ministry and in our preaching ministry. To Uh, that
0: end, Hewlett, what are you reading?
1: Well, I just finished a book called The Good Lord Bird by James McBride. It's a wonderful book about John Brown. And uh, it's told from the standpoint of of a black slave girl Hmm. who is traveling with John Brown. And uh, it's absolutely wonderful book, and I recommend highly to you. I'm reading a book now called A Room with a View, Uh Pulitzer Prize winner. A Room with a View. I just got started in that, but um, I'm really enjoying it. It, it, it. The pages just roll on. The language is so good. So, um, I mean, there's so many good things out there. We got to always be reading something. Something, so I take a period of time after lunch, and I read a short passage from some devotional book, and then I read a chapter or two from a novel or a short story or a nonfiction book, whatever I'm reading. So that reading is is kind of permeating my life experience day by day. I know we're all busy. We have to make time to do these things. But, you know, Eugene Peterson was no uh, small expert on pastoral ministry. (laughs) So that he used to have on his calendar on a certain day of the week and a certain morning, he would tell the secretary to put the letters FD. And that meant he had an appointment with Fyodor Dostoevsky (laughs) at that time. And he would read during that period because he understood that reading is not an extra part of our ministry. It is part of our ministry. So reading has helped me tremendously. And then I'd say also, take care of the ordinary, the little things, because the little things can become big things. The ordinary can become extraordinary. Always take care of the little things. A short note to somebody. Uh, I know we don't do much handwriting anymore. And that's why a short handwritten note can mean so much more than even it did before. A brief email to somebody. a, A short call to somebody. The little things that seemed to us, well, this is not going to make much difference, but we never know what kind of difference it's going to make. So uh, these are the things I would say have been important to me. And the last thing I'd say is I have developed what I call my wisdom council. This is three or four people that I have known for A long time, I've come to love and trust and respect. When I'm dealing with some decision that's got me baffled, I turn to my wisdom counsel. And they give me good, wise help. Maybe it's just listening. But maybe that's all I need to verbalize it myself. So... Gather your wisdom counsel and lean on them. I guess these are the things I'd say Matt have been important to me in trying to be faithful under any circumstance, including for me a stroke, which happened in two thousand five and has forever altered my physical being. Uh, but. There are ways that we can work through these things. And the basic way we do it is by tending to the things we know
0: are important. That's so helpful. And, and you know, I'm coming to realize more and more that we don't really, need, I mean, we always need to learn new things, but most of the things we need to learn are things we've already yeah. learned we just need to remember, <laughs> yeah, and just to to get back to I mean fundamentals in some way, right? I'm thinking, watching sure. you and I were talking basketball earlier, right? of yeah. There just there's fundamentals of of prayer, scripture. Um, so often we get lost in ministry in the the more macro things we disagree about, right? The things that get the headlines and and focus on what divides us. Um, and I hear you saying. There is so much more that unites us. And and there's a grounding in Christ and the Holy Spirit that we need to ground our life in through scripture, through the witness of friends, through prayer, through contemplation of the cross and following the cross that ends up being, I'm sure there are things you and I disagree about here and there, right, in life, but we can come together on that and continue to work together well. Um, That's very encouraging to know that there aren't flashy secrets out there. <laughs> there, there are spiritual disciplines that we we work, and that's why they're called disciplines. Sometimes. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly. That's really helpful. Um, so, you probably already answered this. I think I know your answer, but I still want to ask it. So, knowing where we are now, and and it, I'm for it. I mean, it feels like a different time to me than when I was in seminary. Just so, so many differences culturally in the church. So many different struggles. Some the same, some different. Um, Knowing where we are now, I mean, if you were teaching 10 years ago, would you have changed some of what you taught? How would you prepare young ministers to face the church and culture today, particularly, you know, our Western sort of (laughs) evangelical-ish world we live in? Well, um,
1: a couple of things come to mind. I think I would give more emphasis to justice and mercy.
0: Uh,
1: Micah 6, 8. Of course, that was New Testament, so, you know. But uh, Micah 6, 8 has become more and more important to me through the years. Uh, In a way, that's the essence of our life. Do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with our God. So... I think I'd give more attention to justice and mercy. It's all through the Gospels. It's all through the New Testament. And um, it's what the kingdom is all about, God's justice and God's mercy. And as we walk humbly with God, he will lead us to the ways we can contribute to the realization of God's justice and God's mercy. So all three of those things are important there. And um, we, you know, as a pastor, we can sit down for a while on one of those and then for a while on the other of those, then for a while on the other of those. But we need to keep coming back to those very basic notions. Uh, This is what Jesus was all about. God's justice, God's mercy and walking humbly with God. You know, we're remembering the, the events of Passion Week and tomorrow, of course, Monday, Thursday, and then Friday. But you know, in the garden on Thursday night, late, Jesus had to say, not my will, but your will be done. So Jesus had to deny himself to take up his cross and do justice and mercy for all of us there so walking humbly with god is is saying not my will but your will be done so i think i'd give more attention to that i think i'd give more attention to hospitality we have a table tomorrow we're going to celebrate That table. And then when we celebrate that table, we we say, we read the words, do this in remembrance of me, right? What does in remembrance of me mean? Mm. Well, normally we think of it in terms of the Last Supper. We reenact the Last Supper. We do that in remembrance of him. But I think he meant more than that. I think you remember him and all the things he said. Remember him and all the things he did. We have a table. And that table is more than than about just that night. It's about his life as well as his death. You know, the creeds jump from his birth to his death like nothing happened in between. What happened in between defines his death. So um, when we come to the table, let's remember that it's more than just about his death. It's also about his life. So uh, I think those things uh, and the table is the locus of hospitality, isn't it? There's nothing that cannot be dealt with sitting across the table from someone. Now, you have your ideas, and I have my ideas. But together, we may discover we have shared ideas. And those shared ideas can enable us to share our differences. We often start with the differences, not the similarities. The table is a symbol of sharing our agreements and our differences. But a place to start is not with the differences, but with what we believe together. So remembering the table, and living in humility towards God and other people. We have lived as part of triumphalist Western Christianity, as if we alone understand. And sometimes that gets to be the individual. I live as if I alone understand. (laughs) Everybody else has ideas, but I have the right idea. You can't start there. You
0: just can't start there. You know, that's become my my personal like guide for what I do or don't do on social media. When someone gets my blood going or want to post or want to say, and even in my preaching more and more, that um, if I wouldn't say it sitting down at a table with them, if I wouldn't say it at communion table with them, then it doesn't need to be said on period, probably particularly not on social media in that sound chamber and vacuum chamber, um, because there's that feeling that if I don't do it on Facebook, it doesn't actually happen, <laughs> and uh, that that has helped me pastorally to come back to a be bolder in conversation sometimes with people. There are things worth saying that need to be said um, across the table. And then to be calmer in some of those other areas of if I don't have the courage to say it there, I shouldn't have false courage of saying it with very little real world repercussions that, that those cross. And I remember in my, you know, my Baptist growing up, we just sort of jumped from Palm Sunday to Easter with we didn't have good Friday services and, and it was talked about. But there was just kind of a triumphal jump there. But to know that uh, the table and the cross take place in between those are just really important images to guide us, and as you say, in the life.
1: Well, I think that's a wonderful uh, uh, rule of thumb that you've shared with us today. What we won't share across the table, we shouldn't share across the internet. Yeah. Across the world wide web,
0: so to speak. Well, and we've both uh, written those sermons probably. Ready, ready to eviscerate somebody. <laughs> that we go. Mm, I don't think that one needs to be preached. I think that may stay. That was more from my own conscience, maybe. Um, and so often those uh, those aren't scrapped and can get us in. The, it's just that that balance of yeah. of, of pastoral prophetic ministry um, that is both of those and finding the tensions between them is is really key. You've had a lot of helpful things for us. Um, well, I want I want to ask you to give a benediction for us at the end. But before we get to that, I, I want to kind of share what you and I have been talking about. And Hewlett and I's talk about this webinar, um, he brought up the idea of perhaps doing some sort of reading group for Truett alumni and perhaps some other friends. Um, would you just kind of tell us a little bit about what we're going to be doing in the months ahead?
1: Well, of course, uh, I've already said that reading is, I think, very important for anybody in ministry. It, it adds to our person. And it gives us a thousand eyes, C.S. Lewis said, to see things that one set of eyes can't see. So uh, the idea was that we would read a book a quarter and at some point we would come together for discussion of that book. Um, We have talked about using the name reading matters with kind of a double meaning because reading does matter but also because we're gonna deal with matters that are set before us in the books we read. So the idea is to read important books, that may be fiction, it may be nonfiction, it may be biography, Uh, it may be a children's book, and then come together to discuss it, how it affects our lives and our ministries, what it has to say to us, Uh, so that's the idea. Uh, we would read one book a quarter and uh, come together at, at an appointed time to do a Zoom uh, group discussion. So that's, that's my thinking. And I'd love to have the opportunity to share with any and all of you uh, with that.
0: Well, I am already signed up and ready to go. And uh, <laughs> we will be emailing you, um, those who are on this, the Truett alumni list, information about this in the coming weeks. We'll try to launch these here in the next couple of weeks or next couple of months, excuse me. Um, Dr. Gloward led with um, Greg Garrett and Neil Planinga and, and perhaps others at times, um, a class that largely took place in Kerrville um, called Imaginative Reading for Creative Preaching. And this these groups kind of follow up that. I know as a pastor, I went to that. You allowed me to come into that one time and we read Grapes of Wrath, and Marriott and Ecstasy, and Quotidian Mysteries, and I think probably some Wendell Berry. I can't remember which one, and I mean, it was just the best week to dive into story, to consider how story affects my ministry and my preaching, how to do better storytelling in my preaching by reading great stories, um, and, and again, I, I've reread everything that we read in that, and I, I look forward to having a small replication of that in this group. So um, thank you for being willing to do that, for bringing the great idea. And hopefully some of that are here today or be listening on the podcast. Look for information. We'll sign up soon. That sounds great. Well, Hewlett, do you have a final blessing, benediction you would pronounce over us?
1: Well, I have one that I'd like you to share in, if you would. Certainly. Uh, I think some of you will remember this, but... um, it comes from a man who used to be the Secretary General of the United Nations, Dag Hammarskjöld, in his book called "Markings," which is a book you should read if you haven't. Uh, it's he, he was a deeply dedicated Christian, and at one point he gives this benediction, and I, I want you to help me with it. Sure. I'm going to say, for all that has been, we say, you say, yes, okay. no, all right. For all that has been, we say, thanks. For all that is still to be, we say,
0: yes. Got it? Got so, it. And yes. I can handle it. <laughs> all
1: right. Now, you got to do it with some exuberance. All right. <laughs> let's, get, let's get into this, okay? I can't hear you, but I want you to do it loud enough that I can. Okay. It's been great to be with you. I've loved the time and look forward to more time like this in the future. So, for all that's been, we say thanks. thanks. And for all that's still to be, we say yes. And we say all of this in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, one God forever and and ever and ever and ever. Amen.
0: Dr. Glower, it really is a joy to be back with you. Uh, I think I speak for generations of Truett alumni and ministers around the world who are thankful for your witness, for your faithfulness to us that continues to this day. And uh, there are people preaching and serving all over this world every week who you bear indelible marks upon their ministries and the proclamation of the gospel. And uh, we're thankful for you and appreciate your time today. Look forward to seeing you again soon. Thank you, Matt. Thank you, sir. Have a great day. Bye-bye. You too. Thanks.